Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S. And each week, we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. All right. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs reporting for ConnectingVets.com. And uh, today we're going to take a deep dive into the issue of homeless vets. Now, it's something we've covered right here over the last five years. I've looked at programs that are designed to help vets with a variety of needs. Everything from VA mental health programs to the galaxy of resources from private organizations. However, in Los Angeles over the last several years, the issue of homeless vets reached a true crisis. And a newly released podcast called City of Tents Veterans Row shares a deep multi-year examination of the issue. And it revealed a story of homeless vets encampment right there in L.A. by the fancy Brentwood neighborhood that I found as shocking as it was tragic. I think it's great. Look, they won't let them inside. I'm going to sit out here and make everybody who drives up Sam Senny, including the vice president of the United States, see me here. We're going to pass out some food. Uh, we also have bags, pre-packed bags right here. It has hoodies. and. Uh... I feel like this is a gift from God, that this is something I can I can help. This camp turned the typical politics around homelessness upside down. While I was on the phone with him, he said, I think someone just got killed. So with that, let's welcome Anna Scott, the podcast host and a reporter on homeless issues in L.A. for KCRW. Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Wow. City of Tents, Veterans Row. Uh, it is compelling and it is not your typical shall we say, liberal look at a societal issue that has a neat solution that's black and white. You dug into the granular details that are gray. Let's just start with kind of an overview. Tell me about City of Tents. Yeah, well, thank you, first of all, for that very nice introduction. Um, And I'm glad to hear you say that because one of the things that I do want to do is surprise people and find a new way to look at this issue. You know, homelessness, it's one of these issues that has become very partisan, very political. Here in L.A., it really dominates life. We have this huge crisis. And so people kind of have their minds made up about it or they're tired of talking about it. So with this, I was really looking for ways to cut through all of that. But yeah, the basic premise of it is uh, I spent about more than a year and a half following the entire lifespan of this one encampment here in Los Angeles, which is a city full of encampments, uh, because it was very unusual. It was known as Veterans Row. It was all unhoused military veterans living there. And it was in one of the fanciest neighborhoods in L.A., as you mentioned, Brentwood. 
And right outside of an enormous veterans affairs complex, there's a big campus there with a hospital on it and medical facilities. So, I mean, right away, I wanted to know why are these, why are these guys camped outside the VA? Why, why aren't they on the other side of the fence? Also, I was interested in how Brentwood was reacting to this because it was pretty hard to miss this thing. This was a, this was a big camp with matching tents, big American flags. I mean, they really brought a military style to it. I was EOD, explosive ordnance disposal. My MOS is 8404. I'm a combat medic, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines. Joined the Navy, became a corpsman. And all the tents are supposed to be uh, aligned. They're all supposed to have flags on the, on the left-hand side. You know, dress right dress, as we called it in the military. That's how it started. And as I followed uh, what went on there, I mean, it just went in directions I never expected. It was a microcosm in a lot of ways for the issues that unhoused people all over L.A. County deal with and the risks of living outdoors. But, you know, because they were all veterans, there were it was an interesting way to get into the issue because there were different resources available and just a whole different dynamic to the camp than any that I'd been in before. Let's talk about some of the people we meet in episode one. Welcome to the neighborhood. When you first walked in, you were like, what's going on here? Uh, it was, you could almost mistake it for some kind of emergency shelter program run by the VA because it was right outside of that campus. So saw a couple guys hanging out, you know, between tents, somebody playing the guitar, somebody hanging out in the street. So I just started walking up to people and um, introducing myself and telling them that I wanted to just get the lay of the land, learn a little more about the camp. And so it started from there, but it was, it was a very striking visual. I put in there and then I put in some organic early bird blend. This is James Snelson making breakfast on a camping stove in front of his tent. I'm doing French toast. My batter for the French toast is just eggs and a little milk, you know. And the contrast between the camp and the neighborhood it was in, like you were talking about, was also pretty remarkable. You know, this is Brentwood. I mean, if anyone outside of L.A. sort of Brentwood, maybe it's because of O.J. Simpson, right? The last, probably the last high profile homicides in Brentwood were Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman in 1994. Uh, and then there were two that occurred at this camp. So this thing, I mean, it it really went far and it really ended up engulfing this whole neighborhood and in conflict over time. When you met the veterans there, I know we have a stereotype in our mind of what a homeless person is or the grizzled, old, bearded, Jethro Tull, Aqualong looking gentleman who has been sleeping on the streets. Was it shocking to you to see the types of residents in this camp? It was a real mixed bag, which I would say is true of of a lot of the encampments that I've spent time at reporting around the county. I mean, you go into you know, almost any one and and it's almost impossible to generalize about the people living there. And that was true of Veterans Row, too. Um, there were people there who were dealing with pretty serious mental health issues. But then there were a lot of people who were great with sitting down and talking to me for a long time and people who dealt with addiction, people who didn't, who who just had financial issues primarily. Um, a lot of them received services at that VA campus that was right next door to the encampment. So uh, so they could go there and they would see doctors. Um, they had, you know, a little bit more access to just basic services, right? Including like bathrooms, for example, beyond just like the healthcare stuff. Then you might find it at a camp around LA, but yeah, the people there were real, were real mixed bag. And uh, overall, you know, pretty welcoming, pretty friendly. <laughs> Still pretty bold for, uh, you know, a reporter to go into, you know, what could be a volatile, you know, almost dangerous situation. But uh, the yeah. audio you had, it was gripping. In fact, some of the residents that you were able to really capture personalities. We'll start with the, the very first one I think I remember was John Raposa. Mm -hmm. uh, and, yeah. and he's not a very lucid. In fact, you're talking to him about like French toast and Melaleuca oil in his camping shower and everything. But it, it kind of paint me a picture of what he was like. Oh, yeah. Oh, so there are two different guys. So John is a Navy veteran who's in his 60s. And he's actually, I believe, the first 
veteran whose voice you hear in the whole podcast. He loves to talk about literature. He went to film school. He has this sort of elaborate lighting scheme set up in his tent when you first meet him with these Christmas lights. And he's talking about how he went to film school so he understands lighting and yeah, I drape Christmas lights. lights around. Yeah, string yeah. lights draped around, and that would give me a general lighting, um, as opposed to me one single light source. But I, you know, as I'm also a film school grad, and um, really? yeah, I went to Emerson College in Boston, and um, so lighting is you know something that you know you learn to do, I guess, right. as a filmmaker. And he's very funny. He also deals with a serious addiction issue. Um, he, he smokes fentanyl, which is a really nasty drug and a very cheap drug in L.A. right now. There, you know, there's a lot of vulnerability among the unhoused to ODing on that drug. So, you know, we talk really openly about that. And he deals with depression and and other sort of underlying you know, mental health issues. But honestly, you know, the kind of mental health issues that probably you or I can can relate to, you know, he's perfectly in touch with reality. We really, in the first couple episodes, get into what that addiction is like, you know, what, and, and the cycle that it's pretty easy to get into when, you know, he, for example, he'd been through multiple rehab programs on that VA campus before, but then he would leave and be back out on the street. And so without a real path laid out to, you know, how someone's going to progress from say, going into a rehab like that, into permanent housing, he just talks about, well, once you're back out here, it's very hard not to use because it's a really depressing, crappy situation. And as depressing as the whole situation was, you know, he's one of many people I met who were also just really fun to talk to. So out here, it's like, I got friends, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm surrounded by people 24-7. We don't always get along and it's, there's a lot of drama, but... Yeah, I'm not alone. One of the things that made this podcast so interesting to listen to is over the course of a few years, just how well Anna got to know some of the residents like you'll hear in this next clip. I run into Scott Merrick, the Army veteran who showed up at Veterans Row with a backpack and a small dog who Rob was on the phone trying to get a bed for about a week after he first showed up. He tells me he still hasn't been able to get onto the campus. So where is he staying? Oh, I have my own, my own place. It's the one, the makeshift tent. See where the red umbrella is? Uh-huh. Scott shows me how he's built a kind of hanging faucet made of water bottles. I have a shower for myself. I, I wrap two five-gallon bottles of water, put a little bit of Malaluca oil with coconut milk in the water, just to, like a little bit. Wow. And it makes your body feel great. Look at my finger. He holds his hands out. My fingernails are semi-clean. For me, there's just a part of my mind that's thinking, I cannot believe that this is happening. Why is this guy jerry-rigging a shower to his tent on a sidewalk when we're right across the street from all of this wealth in Brentwood. And we're right next to the VA, right? The one federal agency whose entire job is to take care of veterans. What is going on here? It really showed the revolving door. And as we talk about that revolving door with the VA giving some limited service in one capacity, but not helping them bridge or make a trajectory to an actual independent, self-sustaining lifestyle, but just whack-a-moling the symptoms of what's going wrong with them. We meet another guy and his name is Rob Reynolds. His story was so fascinating because it really defined that revolving door. Tell me a little bit about Rob's story. Yeah. Rob is uh, an army veteran too, served in Iraq, came back, um, made his way. He was from the East coast, made his way to California where he worked as a firefighter for a while. And, um, over time, he, he developed issues with PTSD related to his deployment and then compounded by the trauma of going on these 911 calls as firefighters. I had, uh, you know, PTSD and had some substance issues as far as I'll go into it. Um, and that was really just untreated PTSD. Uh, I'd never been to therapy before, um, so that did lead to some self-medicating. He eventually made his way from the central coast of California down to Los Angeles to this VA in West L.A., this huge 
campus uh, right next to where Veterans Row ended up forming. But he arrived prior to Veterans Row forming. And he tried to get into a PTSD program there and ended up being turned away because he had a service dog. And the VA's policy was to not let people come in with animals. And what you can really hear as you learn Rob's story is how getting turned away when you're in a crisis, when you're at that lowest moment asking for help can just break you, as Rob puts it. I go in and they're like, oh, you can't um, you can't bring the dog. You're like, you, you got to get rid of the dog before you can come in. And I was just like, the hell are you talking about? I got to get rid of the dog. He refused. Diva is a registered service dog. And what would that even mean? Get rid of her? And I was like, well, where do I stay tonight? And they're not here. And that did a lot to me. I was just like, the hell with this. It It really can be a make or break situation where... It's not so easy to just, you know, come back the next day or keep trying. And for Rob, it ended up being this this months, many months long odyssey of, of bouncing around between the street outside the VA and different motel rooms. And uh, he's pretty resourceful. And he eventually managed to get himself into that PTSD program after enlisting the help of a local congressman. But, you know, the fact that it even came to that is is pretty sad. And so when we meet him, he's come out the other side of that. He has his own apartment. He, uh, he's gone through the PTSD program, but he was kind of the main organizer of Veterans Row and the main advocate there for the veterans who were still on the street. And um, I think he evolves through it, and, uh, but ended up being a very effective advocate. From my own work at a homeless shelter and from, you know, my own volunteering, I was amazed. Everything he was doing was the work of a licensed certified social worker, the LCSW. He, it, it's almost like he was performing master level, master degree level, doctorate level work with these people. But yet he was just a, a busted vet that felt horrible, needed, needed help, couldn't get it right away. And, and really illuminated that revolving door that is services from the VA uh, mm-hmm. The very fact he had to go and get on letterhead, the VA stating you can't come in with the service dog, not just a chihuahua that he really liked, but a legit trained service dog with papers. Here's a VA in one department trying to get people service dogs. And then another mm-hmm. department saying, I'm sorry, we can't treat you. You're okay. You have a service dog. Like what? It was just maddening hearing Rob unpack this. And then at the same time, you're kind of amused and thrilled and proud to hear all that he's doing once he gets his life together, so to speak. He's he he's still going to this shelter every day. He's still a shelter. He's still going to this encampment every day and becomes the the boss where people are calling him at all hours of the night, ultimately in one of the best cliffhangers in the early part of this. While I was on the phone with him, he said, I think someone just got killed. In addition to him, let's chat a little bit about just some of the other folks. You kind of compare and contrast the neighborhood do-gooders and then this neighborhood activist. And the do-gooders in their heart of hearts are feeling they're doing everything good. They're throwing barbecues. And then there's the activist for the neighborhood who in her heart of hearts feels, well, if you weren't there, you just wouldn't have these problems and you should just go get service. Talk to me about the compare and contrast of the do-gooders versus the neighborhood representative. People in the surrounding neighborhood had very different reactions to this encampment. So um, the activist you're talking about was at the time the head of the Brentwood Community Council, which is an organization that represents mostly homeowners in Brentwood and business owners. And and she and, and other people in the organization, a lot of people in Brentwood were really angry about this encampment, you know, for, for some reasons that are understandable, right? It was disruptive. It took over an entire street. Uh, there, there was violence there. So that freaked people out. Um, and, but, but she has a view that the advocates or people providing food, doing things like that, or, or volunteers like Rob are really not helping the situation at all, that they think they're helping, but in fact, they're just perpetuating the whole situation by assisting people at the encampment. Now, there were many other people who kind of adopted this encampment as a cause because largely because it was veterans and you know we generally have a different social contract with veterans and um a lot of people really specifically responded to that fact and and they would 
There's a woman that we hear who threw, threw barbecues there several times a week with a portable grill. Um, people were always dropping off food and clothes and uh, showing up with all sorts of different resources. People, there were politicians that would have political rallies there, which you also hear in this series. Uh, people running for office would go and, uh, and, and have events that they would broadcast on YouTube or do on their social media accounts with hashtag veterans row. I mean, it was a real, it was a real circus and people really disagreed about the best way to handle it. So one of the driving questions throughout the series that I was very interested in was who is really helping here? Because, you know, even among the, the do-gooders who kind of adopted the camp, I, I thought there were several uh, self-promoters in there as well. People that were there for, you know, their own reasons and Maybe they weren't necessarily doing harm, but I certainly questioned how helpful they were. And um, and so that was one of the things I really I really reported. You know, I didn't just take it for granted that, oh, these you know, these are the people helping and these are the people not helping. I really listened to everybody and took all these arguments seriously and figured it out through the reporting who who was actually really helping the veterans off the street at the end of the day and uh, and who wasn't. Yeah. By the time you get into the second episode, it, you're already setting the stage for what is truly a tragedy and what is truly a frustrating thing. And I know for the veterans listening and for my veteran brothers and sisters, uh, this is not something new. A lot of times when guys are coming here to get help, you're kind of at like your lowest spot. Yeah. And then when you go in and you get turned away, it can just kind of like break you. And it just reinforces that like, what's the point of even being alive and dealing with any of this? It's like just it puts that whole that whole thought back in your head again. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs, reporting for ConnectingVets.com. Now today we're talking about a brand new, incredible podcast, City of Tents, Veterans Row. Our guest is Anna Scott, the founder and host of the podcast, and it's a story of a homeless encampment in LA, right across the street from one of the ritziest neighborhoods known as Brentwood. And it's literally right outside the fence of one of the country's largest VA campuses. As we'll learn from Anna, it's almost 400 acres of land, and it was once home to thousands of war veterans. But now, much of it sits vacant, while vets sleep on the street just a few feet away. As with most things in this podcast, the story at times seems unbelievable. Bobby remembers visiting the VA campus years ago with a veteran who served in Vietnam. They walked up to one of the empty buildings. The place had a chain. Of course, he just pulled the door open. And we walked in there, and there were toilets on the floor, ceiling tiles falling on the ground. It was just a decrepit mess. Then we walked into the other buildings that were exactly the same. And he said to me, can you imagine that these things were built as housing for people, and they're in this kind of state right now? And that made an impression, obviously, on me. Yeah, so this particular VA campus that was right next door to Veterans Row has a very special history that ends up being a huge part of the story as the series goes on. So it's enormous. I mean, if you live here in L.A., it's one of these things that maybe you drive by every now and then. It's just kind of like, oh, that weird VA campus, right? If you're not a veteran, you're not using the hospital. It's kind of like out there, but it's it's very inaccessible. I mean, it's kind of built like an actual fortress. It's It's enormous, but it's got gates all around it and not a ton of entrances and very confusing place when you are there. But if you then go on the campus and you drive around, you see weird, old, creepy, dilapidated buildings, a spooky chapel with paint peeling off. I mean, these sections that just look like a horror movie. And there's all this open space. And then there's also these medical facilities and a big working hospital. And it is just a weird place. So it turns out that this campus was it's on land that was actually donated to the federal government all the way back in the 1880s so more than 130 years ago specifically to be a home for veterans so it it has this incredible history because at the time this was maybe 20 years out from the civil war but this country actually had this whole system of veterans homes they, they called them soldiers soldiers homes and they were these big campuses all around the country where people disabled soldiers coming back from war could go and they would live and they would have healthcare on the property and um, they, and they were real communities. And so this was, this land was donated to be part of that system. And 
at different t- points in time, there were people from, I mean, any war you can think of living there, thousands of veterans at a time, as many as 4,000 at, at, 4, at one time. In its peak, it had its own post office. But over time, that system of soldiers' homes was abolished. The VA morphed into doing what it does today, which is healthcare, benefits, cemeteries, really got out of the housing business. And that campus was emptied out. People were evicted from that campus. And it became mostly a healthcare facility. But some of these leftover old buildings from the time when it was the soldier's home were just left to rot. Uh, We do detail in the series how uh, a little more than a decade ago, a group of homeless veterans in L.A. County actually sued the VA. Uh, they, They were represented by the ACLU and some other public interest attorneys. and they sued and said, hey, this this land was given for this purpose, to be a home for veterans. And we don't have a home. You've got to provide housing on this campus. It was eventually, the, the case was eventually resolved with this agreement that was a big deal, lots of press conferences. Um, this, this was during the Obama administrations. The VA secretary was Bob McDonald at the time, and he went in front of cameras and said, we're, we're going to turn this back into a home. We're going to build all of this affordable housing on the campus more than a thousand units for unhoused veterans. And we're going to make this campus a real centerpiece for finally ending veteran homelessness in LA County, where the problem has always been especially stubborn. And uh, short, long story long, they haven't done it. Um, they, you know, they, they've made a plan to get this housing done and they're, they are executing it, but very slowly. I mean, it was supposed, there's, they were supposed to build 1200 units of affordable housing on this campus in total and have, over half of them done by now. And uh, up until this month, really, they, they had just 54 units done. And now they're they're opening a few more buildings, but it's just been glacial. And we really dig into the reasons why in the podcast as it goes on. Understanding why that plan has not come to fruition like it was supposed to was a big strain of my reporting. It's crazy. This land had on it. Also, you talk about how the VA misused the land that resulted in the lawsuit. I mean, mm-hmm. oh yeah, they well, built was... they built things on this land that have nothing to do with veterans, and it was solely for revenue for the VA. Tell me about that. After uh, the VA really got out of the housing business, and they had all this extra land, I suppose you could <laughs> you could call it. They did start leasing out portions of the campus. Uh, Enterprise Rent a Car had facilities there at one point. There's a private school called the Brentwood School, which has athletic facilities there, 20 acres. Um, they, they rented out part of it to UCLA, for which has a baseball field on the campus to this day, part of it to the city of Los Angeles for a dog park for the surrounding neighborhood, all sorts of things. And that was actually also part of the lawsuit um, that those homeless veterans filed with the ACLU. They, they not only made the argument that, you know, you have to live up to the deed of what this land was intended for, what it was donated for. And provide this housing, but also you're misusing it by having all of these outside entities rent portions of it for, for stuff that has nothing to do with veterans. And they won on that point. A judge agreed with them. So many of those leases were canceled, but not all of them. As you can imagine, some of the renters, the Brentwood School, UCLA, they hired lobbyists and really made their case that they should stay there. Um, I mean, yeah, UCLA even managed to get uh, a law written sort of legalizing their lease that Mm -hmm. is definitely a sticking point for a lot of veterans and look the 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 va could build the housing it promised and also you know have this ucla baseball field on the land right and that's one thing that they will say often they'll say well these renters they're not stopping us from also having the housing and all the things for veterans i understand that but i think but there's a lot of people a lot of veterans that that i've talked to who it feels like the slap in the face because they see all these beautiful facilities that these other entities have and the VA, the VA has not made good on its promise. That really makes a lot of people angry. Yeah. My two takeaways from episode two were that, well, one, we took better damn care of veterans from the Civil War, the Spanish-American War and World War One back then when the VA actually housed people. Than we do today because the VA says, Oh, well, we're going to, we're going to provide benefits. And the benefit application process is just, you know, you just can't get through that gauntlet sometimes, especially if you've been out 
drifted far away from the pier and you're a Vietnam veteran or you're a older veteran that just doesn't have paperwork and you've been homeless for 20 years. And uh, the second takeaway from episode two was that uh, the VA actually in settling that lawsuit made it unenforceable or a, a, some, some kind of non-binding element to the court case, which the attorney you interview on that case uh, actually feels totally remorseful for. This will get the job done. 1,200 units would be a meaningful change. And when they said, don't make this an enforceable agreement, we felt, but you've got to trust the United States government is finally coming through. And when you say it wasn't an enforceable agreement, what do you mean? Every other settlement I've ever done, you reach the terms of the agreement, and then each party agrees that if the terms are not complied with, you can go back to the court, and the court will enforce the settlement. I, I want to say I'm a good lawyer, and I'm proud of the work I've done, but not this one. And that sets us up for episode three, The Blame Game. Not only is a discussion of the real estate and how the VA's unenforceable nature is not building what they promised would be 1,500 homes or 1,200 homes. They've built 54 to date with a few on the way. But it also also tracks murder, also tracks the death of a veteran there. Uh, explain to me how it heats up in episode three. So there were two murders at the camp in the time that I was reporting there. And the first homicide that we cover in the series happened in um, – this this was earlier in 2021, and it started as a fight between a guy and his girlfriend, and some other guys tried to intervene, and it escalated. And um, and the suspect in the crime, he had some seems to have had some mental health issues going on. You know, he he was plugged into outreach workers and different professionals that were working at that camp. Now in this next clip, we'll hear from the podcast City of Tents, Veterans Row. We'll hear how Anna's relationship with these veterans yielded interviews that just helped paint the details to this, at times, shocking story. So when I saw that call, I, I wanted to answer just to see if there was any issues. The voice on the other end belonged to a man Rob knew named Dennis. Dennis was calling from Veterans Row. He's like, you need to come out here. And I was like, why? What's going on? He said, I think there's, you know, people are fighting. You know, my initial thought was, well, some of these guys fight all the time, so they'll get, they'll get over it. You know, when you're in that environment, that stressful environment, you know, emotions get the best of them. While I was on the phone with him, he said, I think someone just got killed. That someone was a veteran named Brian Prentice. Brian's death would be the beginning of the end of Veterans Row. Um, the victim in the case was was actually scheduled to enter a program on that VA campus just the day after the murder, but had to wait. He couldn't go in right away. He had had to do some uh, COVID tests and and just go through some various red tape, and just couldn't get same day same day access. So, uh, so he was supposed to go in on a Monday, and this happened on a. Sunday. So why are people ending up at this camp in the first place? And how accessible is this campus? And is it typical for somebody to have to wait to enter a program like the victim in this case? So that episode, it it focuses on the murder, but also uses it as a jumping off point to really look at the relationship between the camp and the campus. And one of the shocking things that I discovered in the course of my reporting, which is in that episode, is that there were professional street outreach workers that were using Veterans Row as a de facto shelter. They would, that would find veterans in other parts of town and say, hey, you know, come to this encampment right by the VA. At least you're closer. We can try to get you services, da, 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 which just goes to show, I mean, A, the lack of, uh, the lack of same day care, a quick roof over your head, all those things, you know, if, the professionals are relying on this street camp as a resource. You know, that really tells you something about the system. But it also tells you something, frankly, about just the, the real lack of urgency on the part of all these professionals to, to treat this as a life or death situation, which it absolutely was. I mean, 
it was really pretty stunning to find that out. Yeah. And I think my heart broke too, because he's talked about that, uh, the victim there in the first murder, he was accepted into a drug treatment program. He couldn't get in for like another, you know, couple of days, but he'd already had his, you know, he'd already had his ticket stamped to ride, so to speak. And mm-hmm. then through an argument at the camp gets run over by a car dragged down the street to his death. Another veteran injured in that whole scenario. And, you know, you've got activists saying, well, if he wouldn't have gone to the camp, then he wouldn't have been murdered. And then you've got the whole VA hiding behind, well, he didn't have his COVID test. And there's a VA hospital on the damn campus where you can get a COVID test in a minute. And frankly, any of us can go to CVS and buy a COVID test ourselves. Yet they make mm-hmm. it challenging for you to get all of your affairs in order and don't offer the one-stop shop of Get here, get your card stamp. We'll test you for COVID. Sleep here for one night, and then boom, you're into this program that already has a building and a place to go. No, they send you back out the gates to go do more of the administrative side. And in the meantime, this dude gets run over by a car by another veteran that is suffering from mental health issues, obviously, but nonetheless murdered one yeah. of his fellow camp residents. Um, as frustrating as that is, we also talk a little bit about, um, the ability to get people into a permanent housing. And I've heard this over the years, but the housing urban development, the HUD VASH, mm-hmm. VASH, an acronym standing for veterans assistance for stable housing or something to that effect. But it's a, it's a voucher that the federal government will give a, a, a landlord and mm-hmm. say, this person has qualified for this program. They're below a certain income. They are in fact a veteran. Please take this HUD VASH for, for certificate and this will pay, basically pay this guy's rent. Mm-hmm. And right. how long does it take to get a HUD VAST certificate? Because this was mind blowing. You're homeless. You qualify for a HUD VAST certificate, but yet it could take how long to get one? A few months. I mean, it was four months at one point. I think they got it down to three, which is, which is the typical length of time. But I've certainly seen people wait much longer to get one of these vouchers in their hands. And I mean, these are life saving. But it's a lot harder to use them in a place like L.A. because most of the time landlords can just make more money renting to the highest bidder. And also in L.A., for whatever reason, the VA is, has historically been notoriously slow at handing these things out and actually getting them into people's hands. You know, you you have at any given time in L.A. County, there's at least in the time that I was reporting this series, there were a thousand or so vouchers just sitting with the local housing authority not even distributed, not even, not handed out yet. And I, and I followed people for this series who were in different points of, you know, different processes of trying to get these vouchers. And, um, and I followed them as they just waited for months and months just for simple things, right? You, they've already gone through the whole process of qualifying, but the waiting to get this thing in hand would take forever. And then, it was, it seemed, at least for the people I followed, it was very difficult to get real aggressive help in then taking these things to landlords because it is so hard in LA. So even when you have it, there would be people whose vouchers would expire because they couldn't find a landlord um, to take it. And, you know, you need, I think, an aggressive case manager to help with that when you have one of these, because especially if you're staying in a shelter, if you're staying in a street encampment, it's tough to clean yourself up, go meet with landlords, you know, convince them that they should accept this voucher, which they're probably going to make less money taking that than they would just renting to whoever. So you really need a strong advocate. Yeah. And if you're also on a property that's nearly 400 acres, much of it grassy and, you know, tree lined, why can't you just build more places where these HUD vouchers would be accepted rather than letting the free market decide? Why not just build the damn solution, you know, then it's fixed. But that's so black and white. And again, this whole thing is in the gray. And again, which is why I think it's, you know, been a pleasure to listen to. Uh, That kind of covers the first three. I know we got several more weeks with more episodes coming. Where are we going to go next? Well, there was a second murder. So we get into that and how that happened. Um, then that ended up prompting President Biden to send out his VA secretary, Dennis McDonough, to visit the camp. So you will hear that visit. Uh, I will sit down with Secretary McDonough in a later episode and have a conversation with him about, about the plan for that campus. And I really do a deep dive into what the reasons are that that housing is taking so long. 
we will definitely get into all of that. And you'll hear from the secretary and then you'll hear what it eventually took to get the veterans off the street because the camp did end. And so you'll hear how that happened. And I think I do answer the question of who helped. And um, and I think that in doing so, you know, as frustrating as a lot of this is, which listeners have heard by now, there is a lot of hope in it. And you actually do get to glimpse solutions and see how even if it would be a very heavy lift to end homelessness for everyone in a county like Los Angeles, it seems like we should be able to do it for veterans. Mm. I want to follow up with just some of the reporting we've done here and kind of stick the landing with some of the things we've done at ConnectingVets.com. And I know going back to February of 2022, McDonough said to us, due to significant investments from Congress in the last three years, we have substantial resources to invest in homeless prevention. Again, this is VA Secretary Dennis McDonough. He stated several goals, and that was placing 1,500 veterans experiencing homelessness into permanent housing, increasing to 50% the percentage of veterans admitted to the HUD-VASH program and housed within 90 days. And he said that it was possible to reach these goals in 2022. Without a total spoiler on the podcast series itself, did we even come close to those goals? I think it's some of both. I mean, I think I, I, I will, I mean, I have to give credit where credit's due. Um, veteran homelessness has been going down the last couple of years nationwide. There was a huge drop between 2010 and 2016, and then a, sort of a plateau for a little while. And then the last couple of years, there's been some decent progress, partly related to these new investments and, you know, kind of doubling down on things that we know have worked in the past. And we do look in the series really closely at a couple of promises made about Los Angeles County specifically, because this has always been the nation's capital for veteran homelessness. While the VA is doing some effective things, I think we also look at some of the ways that some of the promises that were made were kind of fudged a little bit. Like there was a big promise to get a certain number of veterans here in LA into housing by the end of, oh, might've been 2021. One of the ways they did it was by counting temporary shelter as housing, which by the federal government's own definition, people in temporary shelters are still homeless. So eh, I think that's cheating a little bit on the promise. So with all these big promises, I think you always have to like look out for stuff like that and really get into the weeds of how they accomplished what they said they accomplished and and dig into the numbers. And I think we do do that in the podcast. You were emotional at times during the first three episodes. I heard some of your private note taking that you read into a recorder and you know could kind of hear you tearing up over some of these folks' situations, were you equally outraged when time would go by and like you'd see, like you just mentioned, oh, well, we're going to, uh, you know, take a new inventory of homelessness, but we're going to include people in, in one night overnight shelters. And well, look at their house. They have a roof over their head. That's for 24 hours. Was there part of you that would just want to scream six months after talking to a VA secretary and go, oh my God, you, you can't change the way you take inventory. You, ugh. Of course. Yes. No, of course. I'm, I am a person with emotional reactions and I would get frustrated too. And, you know, I think one of the most frustrating things was just that, look, there was a second murder at this camp, right? I mean, to me, that was, that, that did eventually draw the VA secretary to the camp. So there was a reaction, but in my mind at the time, I was thinking, you know, this campus, it's right here with doctors and social workers and all sorts of resources. Why are they not out here? I don't know, eight hours a day, right? With a table, just standing next to people doing whatever it takes to get them off the street because the stakes are life and death and they have all the resources and they're right over a fence. Now, that's one of the things that I was hoping to be able to pose to somebody at the VA, just why couldn't you guys have done that, right? Why why couldn't you have sent all these resources out to the street and really just triage this situation? Um, and I never, I really never saw it addressed with that level of urgency. And that was really hard to understand. And it was frustrating. And I was hoping to ask them about that, but in the end, they didn't want to do any more interviews. So but what, by the time I got to that, they, they said, Oh, we've given you enough. So, and you do hear from them through the series. And I think we are fair to the VA and all that they contend with. But, um, but that was a question that I had for sure. Wow. Now we're halfway through. Of course, there's an episode that drops every Friday, I believe. And, every Wednesday. Um, oh, excuse me, every Wednesday. And again, we're talking about City of Tents, Veterans Row. 
have you heard back from him since you've dropped any of the episodes? Like has, has anybody reached out? Uh, you know, I know we both know some similar people there. My buddy Terrence Hayes is VA press secretary and I know he's a combat vet himself. Has anybody reached out since this thing started and said, you know, we do want to follow up and give you a little bit closer look at some of the things we have accomplished? Um, I haven't heard specifically from anyone at the VA, although I think that, um, we were in very close touch throughout my reporting on it. And, and, you know, and I think in the series, we, we do try to give credit where credit is due. And we do talk about some of the, the positive things that they're doing and the progress on veteran homelessness, as well as this unbelievably infuriating situation. So I think that by the time it came out, you know, we'd really gone over a lot of stuff. So I, I haven't heard anything specific in reaction from them. Most of the reaction that I've heard has, has just been from listeners who either didn't know about this story or if they're in LA, they maybe saw the camp, but didn't really know what was going on there. Um, I've certainly heard reaction from the veterans um, and people that are in the series and uh, which, you know, thankfully to date has been more, more or less that, yeah, this is, this is accurate. So yeah, we'll see, but we still have, still have four more to drop. So, so we'll see, you know, even with all that reporting, you put things together and you have questions that occur to you that you just didn't ask in the moment. And I certainly have those. So, Hey, maybe, you know, maybe they'll want to do bonus episode or something. Right on. Well, I take it your phone is still working. You are ready to sit down and take another comment. But as of yet, that phone has not rung and the VA has not reached out. Um, color me surprised. You've seen homelessness now. You've seen the veteran homeless issues 360 degrees. Is there a takeaway that says there is a right way to fix this that can be duplicated, you know, in smaller towns, you know, not L.A., but, you know, could Reno get this right? Could 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 Texas be doing something? Is there a takeaway on how we can fix homelessness in general? Yes, I think that's one of the big takeaways. And so. And I, I really want to leave listeners with some hope, not just, not just anger. And absolutely, you know, there are quite a few cities around this country that have ended veteran homelessness, not here in LA, but, uh, but other places around the country, Philadelphia. Um, and it really has been this combination of making housing, cheap housing more readily available through those HUD VASH vouchers, but also pairing people with the right services that they need to address whatever issues led to the homelessness in the first place and really focused, aggressive street outreach where you go one by one and talk to people and find out what the issues are and help them through that whole process of getting into the housing and then getting connected to whatever the appropriate services are. It's hard. It's really hard work. You do have to go one by one when it comes to actually helping people off the streets, but it has worked in this country. We have done it in a lot of places. So I think that, you know, here in LA, got all the ingredients. We've got this huge property that's donated for veterans to live on. You know, we have the same resources that, that other cities have. So why can't it work here just as well? And um, and then I think maybe we could take some of those lessons and apply them more broadly. I mean, you know, it, it would be hard, for example, to ever fully fund Section 8, right, which is the, the non-veteran version of, of HUD-VASH. But there's still lessons you could take from how we've assisted veterans and apply them to everybody. So I really hope that that's one of the big takeaways of the series. And we definitely get very explicit about that in the later episodes of the series. Right on. Do you think we could go back to where we were circa 1900, where there were soldiers homes and the VA actually rolled up its sleeves and did create houses for vets? Do you think we could get back to that? Well, hey, why not, right? I mean, we put a man on the moon. We've done harder things. Maybe it'll never be um the same as the the old soldiers' homes of post-Civil War era, but um but something like it, sure, why not? Right on. Well, you can hear not only that situation, but you can hear so much about the issue of veteran homelessness documented, reported on with the real audio, the real interviews, and somebody that was really there face-to-face with the vets in crisis. Anna Scott, you got to check out City of Tents, Veterans Row, available everywhere you get podcasts. I can't thank you enough for your time and this just incredible conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun.
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.